The views expressed in this program are those of the host and not necessarily those of WVUD or the University of Delaware. WVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware. Joining me on today's Campus Voices here at WVUD is Rebecca McKinnon. She's the author of Consent of the Networked World and the co-founder of the Global Voices website and is a senior fellow at the New American Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us, Rebecca. Thank you. Great to be here. And one of the things I'm really impressed with is that website you helped found, the Global Voices Project. really seeks to empower citizen journalists, doesn't it? Yeah, well, that's the idea, and it's also about attention. Um, When we started the site back in 2004, 2005, that's when blogs were really just getting going. Uh, And I think here in the United States, there were some famous bloggers that were starting to get a lot of media attention. But when it came to bloggers sort of out there in the rest of the world, you know, if you wanted to know who are the most interesting bloggers in the Middle East or in sub-Saharan Africa or in Eastern Europe or or in China, um, you know, you couldn't just sort of Google and find it out. And so our site was really, we kind of brought together a group of bloggers who knew the blogospheres in different parts of the world and started linking to and sort of curating what this conversation is that's emerging around the world where, you know, people um, were taking kind of news reporting into their own hands if they were frustrated about how their country was being covered in the international media or feeling that their own media wasn't covering things the the way they liked um, or just had things they wanted to share, um, the Internet and, and uh, you know, particularly when blogging technology came on the scene, um, it became really easy for people to self-publish. Now, it's very different from what we're seeing at commercial websites where they're encouraging individual consumers to report, you know, to turn in videotapes or send in little blog postings. I mean, isn't it? I mean, I feel like it's a totally different kind of project. Yeah, well, with the news organizations, it's still, you know, the news editors decide what's important, and then they ask the public to help them report the story. Um, Whereas with Global Voices, it's more, you know, bottom-up, if you were, or from the edges in. So... What we're doing is is our editors are just looking out there around the world to see what people care about, what people are writing about, and then amplify that. So it's kind of the reverse direction. As you say in your book, The Consent of the Network, The Worldwide Struggle for Internet Freedom, a project like your Global Voices site really harkens back to the original openness and sharing of the original intent behind the Internet. There's always a tension between decentralization and centralization, and even with global voices, um, there's that tension because you know one one of the issues is yeah there are a lot of people out there talking on the internet, but who's going to get the attention? Uh, and there ends up needing to be some kind of central intermediary with some power to actually help certain people get attention and and maybe. Uh, not pay so much attention to other people. Um, and so 
that's one of the reasons why we started Global Voices was that we realized that, you know, the the ideal um, that you just sort of wait for everybody to use this technology to talk and that, you know, somehow it'll all kind of become more diverse on its own actually turned out not to be the case, that, that actually people were just paying attention to stuff that they were already familiar with uh, and not paying so much attention to things that they, you know, that, that weren't connected to their own experience. And so if you wanted people to pay more attention to the concerns of, you know, African bloggers, it's not going to happen just because African bloggers are blogging. Um, unless somebody is drawing attention to what African bloggers are saying. And so we try to serve as that intermediary, but but to bring things in from the edges rather than uh, central centralized, you know, command and control going out to the to the receiving public. But there's always this this tension. And I think I think there was per, perhaps a bit of excessive optimism in the early days of the internet that, all you need is just to have the internet, and all you need to do is have enough people connected to the network, uh, and everything's going to be free. And I think there's a, what we're seeing, as I talk about in my book, um, but as we've been experiencing, too, just in the Global Voices community, there are a lot of trends towards centralization, concentration of power, not just politically on the government side, but but also commercially. So, you know, uh, it used to be, there, there's a really interesting thing that you can find on the internet, of course, called the World Map of Social Networks, which, which is put out by a, um, a sort of social media tracking firm. And what's really interesting is that if you, if you look at the array of different kinds of social networking platforms that were popular, you know, three or four years ago around the world, there was a real variety. And increasingly, it's being centralized um, because of, of really what you, what we call network effects and pop popularity. And now Facebook is, is the dominant social networking platform in most of the world, with the exception of a tiny handful of countries, um, you know, China, Russia, uh, and and Iran primarily, and and a couple of others, but everywhere else, Facebook's the dominant uh, social network, and so they have a huge amount of power in terms of what people can and cannot do, and who gets heard, and 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 how, and and how your identity is manifested in public, and so on, uh, which is a commercial concentration of power, um, and which is why in my book I talk about. The kingdom of Facebook stand. Um, I love that Facebook that, stand. <laughs> that kind of power. So, so you've got sort of companies, of course, trying to maximize their profits and maximize their footprint, uh, and you have governments, of course, trying to pursue their interests. And depending on what kind of government it is, they'll do that differently. Um, and whatever they perceive their their voters' mandate is, uh, and politicians, of course, responding to all kinds of different demands, uh, be it from voters or from lobbyists or, you know, whatnot. Um, so there's a real, a whole set of overlapping power struggles going on um, on the Internet right now in terms of who gets to exercise influence over what. Let's just back up for our listeners in case they're not aware of this. I mean, the idea is the Internet is global. Ideally, it's a gigantic cooperative venture with limited central control. 
but that's not really what's happening today, is it? Well, no, it's not. Um, and, you know, this, this is the thing, is that in order for things to work well and, and to be coordinated, there, there's always had to be some coordination and some governance and, and also some regulation um, in that, you know, it's not just good people who are empowered by the Internet, but a whole lot of criminals uh, as well. But, you know, let's say even if you, if, if you want to be able, the fact that you can type in CNN.com onto your, in your browser and get to the same site everywhere in the world, that's not an accident. That's actually due to a whole organization that's coordinating between domain names and what are called IP addresses so that when when you type that in, the instructions go to basically through a set of servers and, and, and give you the same site no matter where you are. And that's a lot of coordination. And so there have been power struggles going on for a while over – who who has power to, to to coordinate those types of things and whether it should be in the hands of governments or whether it should be in the hands of companies or some kind of combination. You know, and there's been a, a big struggle going on just in the past year um, over whether the United Nations should be given more control over key resources of the Internet. Um, and then, of course, at the national level, we have a lot of debates. And, you know, even even in a democracy, um, there's a lot of debate about, you know, should the government be allowed to regulate companies to protect users' privacy, or is that too invasive? Um, should companies be allowed to kind of decide what you can and cannot see through your Internet connection? You know, should Com- Comcast, let's say, hypothetically, um, be allowed to let you see hypothetically Netflix, but not YouTube, um, or should they be told by law that they actually can't discriminate on content? But you know, is that a kind of control, or you know, who's who's exercising the control for for whose end? Now that the internet is economically so important, it's politically really critical, as we've seen. You know, would would President Obama be president today if it if it weren't for an excellent internet strategy. Um, you know, it's it's critically important. You know, Arab Spring on the other side. Um, the key message of my book is that, you know, just as if you don't pay any attention to the politics of how your city is governed or how your country is governed and you don't do anything um, to advance your interests, don't be surprised when the people who are spending the most time and money to figure, you know, to determine how your city is governed are going to have it governed, you know, to their liking. And if you want to make sure your interests are represented, you need to be engaged. And so similarly, if we want, if we kind of the users of the Internet, the ordinary little users of the Internet, um, who are depending on the Internet now for everything from our personal lives to our education to uh, to our politics to our religion increasingly, you know, to so many things. We need to make sure our rights are protected um, as governments and companies are, are kind of seeking to pursue their own interests. And the only way we can ensure that our rights get protected is to be engaged on these issues. Sounds to me like you've jumped right to the last chapter of your book, Consent of the Network, talking about the need for us to take personal responsibility. Well, that's right. It's it's sort of, you know, the old adage, uh, at least about democracies, 
is that you get the government you deserve uh, in that, you know, if you, if you don't vote and if you don't participate, uh, you're, you're likely to, uh, uh, you know, get an outcome that isn't in your interest. And we need to make sure that we're paying attention at a number of levels. You know, one is both in Congress and also at the international level when the U.S. is, is engaging in treaties and international agreements around the Internet's regulation and coordination, we need to be paying attention, make sure that our rights and our interests are being served, uh, and and to get beyond the hype and, and the sort of lobby speak, right? You know, and, and this is the case with, with all issues, but it's now the case with the Internet as well. And we need to pay attention to what, what companies are doing. Let's go back and talk first about an example with Congress and then an international example. One of the things I'm interested in is intellectual property law. And for so long in the United States, the people writing the intellectual property laws were the lobbyists for the intellectual property holders. And then something very interesting happened in 2012. Why don't you tell us about the day the Internet went black, the day that (laughs) Wikipedia went black, and how the Internet played a role in stopping SOPA and PIPA and the, the stop piracy legislation that was not actually very good legislation at all. Yeah, well, that's the, that's the thing. You know, the Stop Online Piracy Act, which was the, the bill in Congress and then its, its sister bill in the Senate, the Protect IP Act, you know, have been considered slam dunks. They, Like you said, they've been written by lobbyists um, for the entertainment industry. And the the concern that some free speech and privacy activists and some technologists had had for a long time was that, these bills were going to make it possible for a small number of companies to dictate what gets censored uh, and and also surveilled, and that it was going to basically hold internet companies responsible for everything their users do on their services and force them to proactively monitor and censor anything that might potentially be a copyright violation, lest they they uh, incur penalties, which basically this kind of proactive censorship, you can say, well, it's just about copyright. It's not about political speech. But the problem is, is that sometimes there's a fine line between copyright violations and political speech. Uh, and uh, in, in fact, even under existing law, we've seen companies go after critics who've kind of expose some of their internal documents um, and the companies uh, trying to get the documents taken off the internet by saying it's a copyright violation. And so, you know, it's, it's very, it's a very blurry line. Uh, and there was a concern that basically this would put in place a censorship and surveillance kind of system that while was meant ostensibly to be fairly narrowly ter- tailored, um, could easily get abused, um, and was really in its nature in terms of technically the way it was meant to be set up, um, and and also in terms of the business process and, and the legal process, mirrored um, systems of censorship and surveillance that are already in place in, in places like China. They're just used against a much broader set of quote-unquote infringing content, which of course they're definition of infringing includes political and religious speech, but the processes 
were the same. And so you had a situation where Internet companies saw this as a very dangerous threat to to their business model, uh, and they allied with free expression and privacy groups and with technologists who were really concerned about what this meant technically for the Internet, and really kind of brought together a groundswell of, of popular attention uh, in opposition uh, to the to this legislation and got it killed. And I just thought it was fascinating to see how it was all organized online, you know, yeah. via social media and even Wikipedia just went black for they the day. They went black. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of, you know, websites all went black uh, one day in, in late January last year. And, and suddenly people were like, wow, you know, I got to pay attention to this. Actually, there's some other legislation coming down the pike that has more to do with surveillance and cybersecurity, um, uh, and that's not seeing as much opposition because the companies don't see it so much of a threat to their business model. Um, and while uh, it's, it's called the the Cyber Information Sharing Protection Act, CISPA, you know, there's a lot of support for it in Congress because there's a concern, of, of course, about attacks on our network and so on. Um, but this legislation is currently written. Now there's talk about amending it, but as currently written, uh, it will basically enable companies to share a wide variety of information, including users' personally identifying information, with several dozen U.S. government agencies with very little oversight. And while it's supposed to just be information about threat, um, there's no oversight that prevents the information from being used for other types of investigations and for other purposes. It just comes back to what you say in the last chapter of your book, doesn't it? People have got to take the responsibility to pay attention to how their world online and offline is being legislated. That's right. Let's turn to an international example, because one of the things you do talk about is how the Internet contributed to the Arab Spring. But in the news this year, in 2013, you see countries in the same part of the world, Syria specifically, taking steps to block the Internet. Yeah, well, you know, this is this is the the problem is is that the internet certainly was helpful in uh, Egypt and Tunisia in in helping activists bring down two regimes, but there are a lot of other countries um, where you have a different result. Um, and in Syria, uh, I would I would say that the reason why we've got civil war there probably has to do with more offline, you know, sectarian conflicts and, and other issues. But the government there has been very clever, actually, for quite a number of years in not only censoring, but, but actually uh, surveillance tactics um, uh, and, and actually being able to pinpoint dissidents and pinpoint um, opposition activists through online surveillance and and um, capturing people that way. Uh, and so, you know, that's a huge concern. And even in Egypt, where the Mubarak regime was toppled, you know, activists not long after the regime was toppled, some, of the, some activists got into a um, state security office at one point and saw that actually in the files there, they had, you know, catalogs of everybody's sort of email conversations and cell phone text messages and everything else. And the police are still using that technology in Egypt. And um, while Mubarak is gone, um, 
you know, whether Egypt is going to succeed in becoming a democracy is is a big question mark. And the regime, uh, whoever controls the police, has a lot of very handy surveillance technology at their disposal, much of which was purchased from Western Europe and the United States. I was really pleased in your book to see that you referred to Larry Lessig's concept of the code helping to enforce or form a new layer of regulation around people's activity. That's right. You know, Larry Lessig always uh, likes to say, and as, as he said in his book, Code, code is law. You know, you have law as in written statutes that's enforced by police, um, but you also have law that's written into the, the software code. So, so that in terms of what you can and cannot do online is shaped by the law of the computer code that kind of determines what's possible and what's not possible. Computer engineers and, and, and software engineers have a lot of power uh, in that regard. In your opinion, how should governments try to protect themselves or should they? from this range of cyber attacks that's starting to happen? Well, you know, it's tough. Um, and I, I tend to draw the analogy to, you know, the classic problems of both law enforcement and defense um, in the physical world. We could make Washington, D.C. 100% secure and 100% crime-free, right? At what cost? There, there are trade-offs. But there are also ways to approach national defense, national security, and law enforcement that are compatible with human rights and civil liberties, or that are, you know, generally compatible with human rights and civil liberties. And there, and then there are ways to go about national defense and policing that are very human rights incompatible. And that's always been the case in the offline world. So, I mean, there are often arguments made about cybersecurity, which is, you know, we're under attack. There are criminals stealing our network, so therefore we have to just do whatever we need to do. Um, and that argument, when applied in the offline world, has led to abuses un- unless uh, there was an effort to, again, consider how the enforcement, how the defense was going to be compatible with the values of the kind of society you're trying to protect in the first place. Uh, And that's going to be the same with cybersecurity, both in terms of national security and in in terms of just just defending networks against uh, theft um, and sabotage, is that there's going to be a way to do it that's compatible with civil rights and a democratic society that has buy-in from the population, that has legitimacy, and then there's a way to do it that is human rights incompatible and that does not ultimately have legitimacy with the public. Um, And so what we need to make sure is that our leadership understands that, yes, we understand that there are real threats, obviously, um, there are real threats in the physical world, too, that, that, you know, many of us think that, you know, there is a reason to have police and, and a military, but you need to make sure that they're compatible with a democratic society. And we need to work out how to make security measures and policies in the Internet, on, in, in cyberspace, 
also compatible with democratic values and civil liberties. And we're pretty far away from working that out. It's interesting you kept saying democratic there. I mean, I think one of the reasons we see so much attempt, so many attempts at censorship internationally is that we're used to in America living in a very pluralistic society. The Internet's a very pluralistic society, and yet there are many countries out there that don't want to become pluralistic societies. And I, to me, that's one of the things that leads to some of these conflicts over the Internet governance. Well, that's definitely true. Um, there are a number of, of governments, including China and Russia and Iran and actually a number of others, um, that uh, would like the Internet to be more closely controlled by governments and would therefore like the Internet's governance structures to be moved uh, over to the United Nations and away from the more um, private uh, coordination bodies that currently coordinate a lot of the Internet's functions and resources and technical standards. Uh, and uh, certainly they would like governments to have more say. Uh, and a large part of that reason is that they they want the Internet to be uh, architected and regulated in a way that favors their power uh, and that makes it harder to use the Internet for dissent, makes it easier to surveil and censor. Um, so that's that's definitely part of it. Um, and, you know, although it's it's interesting, because if, if you take a look at a, a country like China, for instance, um, and you could say, oh, you know, the Chinese government must be really scared of the Internet and they must really not want it. But at the same time, they're actually aggressively pursuing broadband penetration, mobile penetration. Actually, China sees... It, the Internet is critical to its international economic success, um, and they need to be connected to, to the global information grid. But they want to be connected to it in such a way that they can control it well enough to, to keep the Communist Party in power. They can't control it completely, and they don't actually try to totally control it. Because then they'd be North Korea, and who wants to be North Korea, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, they control it well enough, and they manipulate it well enough that, yeah, you can use the Internet for all kinds of commerce and entertainment and all kinds of things in China. And, you know, you can even use it to talk about corrupt local officials or, you know, a train accident or expose some malfeasance here and there. But if you try to use the Internet in China to, uh, to organize an opposition movement, a national-level opposition movement, or you try to use it to criticize the central government, forget it. We're talking today with Rebecca McKinnon, the author of Consent of the Network. And to close down our interview, let's return to the Global Voices site that you helped co-found. Sure. One of the things that interests me, I think this this might lead up to it, is that there's a major shift in how regular people like you and me choose to get their news. I mean, you know, we don't just read the daily paper anymore, do we? Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, it, it kind of speaks to why I actually left a mainstream news organization. I used to work for CNN. Uh, and, you know, that was sort of the days when 
an ordinary person in the United States, if they wanted to know what was going on in China or the Middle East or something, they had to look to CNN or the newspaper or, you know, listen to, to the rate news on the radio. And it's just whatever our editors and whatever the correspondents thought was important, that's what you'd get. But now it's much more decentralized. You have members of the public taking news gathering into their own hands and reporting on stuff that editors and news organizations don't find important for whatever reason. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's much more diverse, but also quite overwhelming for a lot of people, too. And and so there's this issue of, you know, in this in this age of abundance where we kind of have almost too much information uh, in, in some senses, um, what are the sort of mechanisms we use to to make sure we're actually getting informed and not just kind of listening to whoever's talking the most who happens to be closest to us. Rebecca, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for calling in. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware. For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website. Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu slash campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, or online at wvud.org.